and welcome to today's edition of The Green Front. I'm your host, Betsy Rosenberg. A little under the weather. I may be running a slight fever, but I cannot um, miss my show because there's so much to talk about, and I have one of my all-time favorite guests up first. If you uh, read The New Yorker or if you ever heard of the fabulous um, book, Field Notes from a Catastrophe, you know about Elizabeth Colbert. She is... Um, really uh, fabulous author on the climate front and has been reporting well years ago for the New York Times and moved on to the New Yorker two of my favorite publications and has I think pretty much taken up the green beat we'll find out what she's working on now uh, a new book and I uh, want to first um, just mention a little bit about the State of the Union uh, the president's speech last night uh, having some pluses and some minuses for those of us uh, watching with the green lens as uh, I certainly always do and most of our audience probably does and then in the second half of today's program we're going to lighten up a little bit we're we're going to meet the founder of the nation's first, I'm sure, Bra Recycling Agency. In fact, it's called Bra. That's the acronym for short. Remember back then? Maybe Elizabeth does. She's a little bit younger than me when we were supposed to all be burning our bras back in the 60s. Well, that turns out to not be such an environmentally friendly thing to do. Lots of toxins in those um, uh, pieces of uh, clothing that we wear so close to our chest, literally. We're going to find out what she has come up with that will um, put some good use to those used perhaps not so used bras, uh, you know, we make them, you know, almost throw away right now with all the um, cheap clothing we get, mostly uh, made in China. So I know my 16-year-old daughter likes to buy bras like, um, you know, I buy different flowers, you know, just kind of change colors. And uh, they end up where? The landfill? The incinerator? Perhaps. We're going to find out more from Kathleen Kirkwood. You won't want to miss that interview. But first, it is my great pleasure to welcome Elizabeth Colbert. Uh, I'm tempted to say Colbert, but uh, that's a different person, different spelling. Welcome to the Green Front, Elizabeth. Stephen has made that last name uh, popular, even though... Uh, yes, I know. It's, it's hard for us to <laughs> pronounce it differently. Yes, and you're with K, of course, K-O-L-B-E-R-T, I believe he's C-O-L-B-E-R-T. But uh, right. you are top in my game in terms of uh, having been on this beat for a long time, covering with so much depth and courage and detail uh, not only what's going on with climate, um, I believe you've done some pieces on oceans, and now you're working on a book about extinction. We're going to get to that. But first just wanted to get your quick sense of the uh, State of the Union address it seemed to me that uh, it, it started out kind of uh, in, in an encouraging way and that he really talked about clean energy near the top of the speech and, and gave it a couple of minutes, but never once mentioned climate change or greenhouse gases. And I suppose that was not, you know, um, by happenstance, probably designed. Maybe climate change has just become global warming too much of a hot topic and we're not even allowed to speak about it anymore. And, of course, that's uh, on the heels of um, where that uh, his climate czar Carol Browner is stepping down. I couldn't help but wonder for a moment. Maybe she fought to have him talk about climate change directly in a speech and perhaps lost that battle, and maybe that's why she's discouraged. I'm totally speculating. I have no idea. But <laughs> going to try to find out. But that's that's discouraging. I mean, for, especially for those of us who have been waiting and watching for the first two years that health care reform took up so much time and energy and bandwidth. And now, of course, some Republicans would have us spend the next two years undoing that legislation, imperfect as it is, waiting for you know the Obama administration to really tackle this. Most most urgent of problems, and now it seems like once again we're slipping. Well, it's certainly, I don't have anything really encouraging to say. I share your concerns, as you can imagine, and I think that people who care about this issue, and unfortunately, you know, that's like sort of saying people who, you know, care about like air. I mean, it should be everybody. Um, you would think, but unfortunately, as 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 we know, and as your your listeners know, you know that's that's not the case. It certainly is everyone that is going to be affected, and in fact is being affected right now. Um, 
but it's not everybody who acknowledges that or you know chooses to try to to confront that um in fact quite quite the reverse so it's been a from a high of the uh you know president's um victory speech to be you know the very first night he was elected when he spoke i i believe i'm quoting you know of a planet in peril uh, when he gave his victory speech that night in chicago um and then proceeded to appoint a number of very uh, good, committed people to key posts um, that was very encouraging to people. Um, and people, you know, he's a very smart guy, and uh, I think that people, you know, I, I know some of the people that he appointed, and they would certainly tell you, look, he, he knows the score, and he knows how important this issue is. Now, from that very... F- you know, first moment, there's been a lot of disappointment, and that disappointment really, I think, began when he chose to make health care the initial priority of his administration um, as opposed to energy legislation. And, you know, that we can never know how history would have unfolded um, had had he decided to do things in a different order. But it doesn't seem like, you know, politically... Uh, things could have could have gone much worse for him. And uh, in terms of the planet, you know, maybe we would now have climate legislation, and climate legislation is one of those, in the U.S., is one of those uh, sort of dominoes. Um, I mean, I guess you want to, and the domino metaphor is maybe bad because of the dominoes fall, but, but you need, it's one of those pieces, crucial pieces of, of like an arch. If you're trying to build an international accord, you need the U.S. to be taking a leadership role, and that's you know precisely what we haven't done. So you know, world history could potentially have have been different. And ever since the president decided to push through health care, and you know, did succeed, but you know, only by the skin of his teeth, as it were, and as everyone knows, um, it's been the, client, the projects for climate legislation have been very bad. A, 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 a bill which you know you can you can debate how good or bad it was passed the House. This is already two years ago, almost. Um, yeah, and then almost two years ago, right in the spring of '09, it was and, June, uh, actually. I was in. I happened to be in D.C. that day and uh, right, celebrated. Right. Thought was, we finally mm-hmm. had turned the corner. If only. exactly, and. Uh, you know, the president really dropped dropped the ball on that, too. I think a lot of people have very persuasively argued that, and I, I think it's true, and we didn't really hear from him. And then uh, nothing happened, and then we got the Gulf oil spill a year later, and still nothing happened, even though, you know, many people argued, well, that that was a moment to try to seize that moment. That was left unseized. Uh, and here we are um, in 2011 with a new Congress, a very hostile Congress in, in general toward climate legislation. And... I think a general sense that nothing's going to get done for the next two years, and that is, you know, something that we can very, very ill afford as a as a species. But that is it's, un- it's unbelievable. It's surreal. Uh, it would almost be, you know, just comical right. if it wasn't so serious. And of course, the, the the other piece of the perfect storm, with Senate dropping the ball on climate legislation, the Gulf oil kill, as I've called it. Uh, is the the incredible weather events we've been seeing, you know, around the globe uh, this summer right. with the droughts and fires in Russia and the flooding in Pakistan. If ever there was, you know, a case to be made, it's right now. And yet, I believe 21 of the 21 Republican senators voted into this new Congress do not believe climate change is a real threat, and the Tea Partiers, you know, are against any kind of legislation. Uh, it's it's enough to make you want to. I'm talking about starting a Green Tea Party for 
a healthier alternative. And for those of us who are steamed that climate change has been taken off the front burner, not to make it a political party, to make it a practical issue, folks. You know, why has this become so politicized? And Mother Nature's not waiting around for us to get our act together. No, you're you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, one of the great, you know, when future generations look back at this this moment, you know, it will be similar to moments, other moments in history that we saw we'd sort of gone beyond where, you know, people were were excommunicated from the church or whatever for saying, you know, that the earth moves around the sun, you know, climate change is just not really a debatable, um, you know, set of geophysical facts, um, and yet we continue to have a lot of people thinking that they can debate them, not using anything that, you know, in a, in a rigorous sense would be considered evidence. So it's a pretty, um, you know, oftentimes, unfortunately, human affairs are not guided by rational thought or by the evidence. And um, oftentimes when that happens, you know, bad things result. And that is unfortunately, I think, the situation that we're in. You wrote an article for The New Yorker uh, just um, before the Cancun Climate Summit called Uncomfortable Climate. And uh, that's what originally got me um, interested in getting you on the program, so we kind of got lost during the holidays. But just go back and and, and give me your thoughts on on what happened or didn't happen there. Uh, They didn't come away empty-handed like they did in Copenhagen, turn Copenhagen, but um, it was not enough to really turn the tide, apparently, or enough to convince the rest of the world that the United States is serious about reducing our greenhouse gases. Well, you know, those those negotiations that are very kind of, I don't want to say they're arcane because they have tremendous consequences or potentially have tremendous consequences. But, you know, people came back from that and some people tried to put a, the best um, light on what had happened and said, you know, it wasn't just a, a, a useless gathering. But as you point out, you know, and said some incremental steps were made that, that indicated that people were, Sort of moving in the right direction, but the you know blunt truth of the matter is that the Kyoto Protocol, which you know has many many faults, as people have pointed out, and that's also you know always intended to be this sort of very first baby step towards some kind of um, you know towards avoiding dangerous uh, climate change by the whole all of the nations of the world. Um, and which I should add, the U.S. is now the only industrialized nation that has not signed on to, um, that accord uh, lapses next year in 2012. And at that point, there will be nothing in place. Now, once again, given how greenhouse gases have, emissions have, have, you know, risen throughout the uh, lifetime of the Kyoto Protocol. I, I don't want to claim that you know suddenly you're going to notice a tremendous difference. But while we were supposed to be taking this step and then building on this step, we will have you know sort of taken this step. And some of the European nations, you know, actually took this protocol seriously um, and tried to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. We will have now nothing, uh, and we won't be moving forward. So you could argue if you're not moving forward, you know, you're, you're basically just moving backward, and you're going to have to start from scratch again. So as opposed to putting this sort of global client carbon trading scheme into place, you know, you're just going to, the whole thing's going to lapse and, and, and no one knows what's going to happen. And to put a new treaty in place, it took many years to put the Kyoto Protocol in place. It, it seems 
impossible to imagine that we're going to have a successor to Kyoto before it lapses. And that's also another sort of just sad comment on uh, the politics of our of our time. And speaking of which, the new uh, House Speaker, John Bonner, I would imagine perhaps the only thing he wouldn't cry about is the prospect of uh, what climate change is going to do to our children's future if we don't address it. Um, ironic that he uh, is known to be such an emotional, sensitive man and yet has a complete blind spot, uh, or worse, when it comes to uh, global climate change. Right. It's, it's, it's pretty much convinced that nothing's going to happen on it. Uh, it seems that, um, you know, Time is not on their side, the deniers, or as I call them, the deniosaurs, <laughs> the doubters. Uh, and yet, how long do you think it's going to take? What will it take? I mean, Mother Earth certainly seems to be speaking loud and clear, even if our president won't mouth the words climate change. What what will it take? And when, yeah. back in 2006, yeah. five years ago, when you wrote Field Notes from a Catastrophe and also your award-winning series, The Climate of Man, for The New Yorker, did it ever cross your mind that with all the information that you know was to follow, we would still be you know, having our heads firmly in the sand as a country? Yeah, well, I mean, unfortunately, it certainly did cross my mind. Um, obviously, one of the points of, of writing the series and of writing the book was to do, you know, my part in trying to um, ensure that that didn't happen, but you have to be kind of um, politically naive, unfortunately, too. And unfortunately, I'm not politically naive. I, I covered Albany uh, politics for many years, so I, I got a good <laughs> the the lesson in real politique um, <laughs> to imagine that just because the information is put out there, um, that it's going to be acted on, as they say, in a rational way. That politics will, um, you know, and I think that many climate scientists, you know, felt that way too. And so, you know, there are many people working out very, very, you know, trying to lay the facts in front of people and say, okay. You know, now it's up to the political system to act on this information, and it's just become clear um, that that's not the way things work, and that that's not going to happen. And that kind of tremendous failure, you know, it's not unfortunately it's not built into our system. We we're very self-congratulatory. We think, well, we've you know we've gotten out of all these crises before uh, as Americans, or just as you know Homo sapiens, whatever you want to say. And unfortunately. You know, that just doesn't predict what's going to happen in the future. Uh, so the future is very, very much an open question at this point. And the, the really dangerous part about change and where climate change interacts in this sort of, to mix metaphor, sort of toxic way with the political system is that climate change operates on its own schedule. So in effect, we have locked in the climate already for a generation because of the inertia of the, of the climate system, the thermal inertia of the Earth system, um, where a lot of your, it takes just a long time for the Earth to reach its equilibrium with the greenhouse gases that are already up in the atmosphere. So if you were to hold greenhouse gases constant at today's levels, the Earth would still continue to warm up for, you know, basically for the next generation. So we will not even see the effects of what we've already done, right, until our kids are our age. And meanwhile, so meanwhile, you know, we, we're just sort of dithering, and those effects are just accumulating. So or as it's I say, very twiddling while, twiddling sorry, while sorry. home is burning. Right, exactly. So it's uh, very, you know, go ahead. 
sorry. It's a, it's a system whereby one generation can leave the problem to the next and not feel the consequences immediately. And people point out our system deals with crises, right? When did we deal with the financial crisis? After it happened. You know, you could argue we still haven't dealt with it. But we certainly didn't deal with it to prevent it from happening. But all you need to do is, um, you know, pay attention to the weather. Even don't go beyond the, you know, U.S. shores. Look what, you know, just happened on the East Coast. Well, you're back there, you know, with these really intense, powerful storms, dumping snow. I happen to be crazy enough to go on Sean Hannity's show and spar with them whenever it snows, and they say this can't be global warming. Ha, ha, ha. Climate change is a joke, and, you know, Al Gore is, you know, a hoaxer and uh, shyster and all that, and uh, I, I just keep going. The facts are on our side. And literally when I was on right after Christmas with this blizzard pounding the East Coast, closing airports over the holidays uh, in, you know, Europe as well, and literally that tape that rolls along the bottom as they're, you know, saying this can't be, we can't have climate, climate, global warming, climate change because of all the snow, uh, their own, you know, network, Fox TV, is reporting about the record <laughs> snowfall. And and what I tried to say, of course, is this is exactly what climate chaos looks like. You know, in a way, it's almost too bad it has been dubbed global warming, and many are trying to change that because even though the global temperature is rising, it doesn't affect the entire planet in a way that we experience as warmer. It's climate, you know, chaos and, and instability. Uh, so it's not like it's a far-off possibility. It's, it's happening if the dots are connected um, already here today and on our shores. And yet you, you don't get yes, that feeling absolutely. that we're in, we're in mean, a crisis here. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that anyone would at this point attribute the storms of this past year uh, in a very rigorous way if you could attribute those to to climate change, what you can quite probably, and people have, you know, certainly done the sort of modeling studies on this. What, 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 what quite probably is an effect of climate change um, were, was the extreme temperatures this summer in uh, in Russia and the fires that uh, that resulted from that. That that was quite probably a a climate change. Um, but I, my understanding is it was. In- Increased participation from melting glaciers in the atmosphere is what's making it more where it would normally snow and just more extreme temperatures. So you're right. We cannot tie any one weather event or series of storms to climate change. We are seeing, because I, I pay attention to this a lot, you know, just like record storms, whether it's killer tornadoes in plates, you know, states where they're not normally seen. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, you know, the hurricanes Katrina, Wilmarita, that perfect storm. Mm-hmm. So uh, we would certainly be wise to, you know, err on the side of caution, and yet that's exactly what's not happening. Uh, I didn't hear anything about extinction in the State of the Union address, and yet um, there's a, a bit of a crisis brewing there, but uh, I guess we don't hear from that constituency. Right, exactly. Well, that that is that is certainly true, that, um, you know, we're the only species that gets a say, really, uh, in our system, um, and that... If we if we were hearing from a lot of other species, um, they would be uh, you know they're not they're not doing too well, um, and there's many kind of well pretty dire consequences coming down the road. Um, some of them climate change related, but some of them related to other effects of pouring dumping a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere. A very serious problem that has gotten a lot less coverage in climate change and. It's probably because, you know, we ourselves are land animals as opposed to marine creatures, but we are really changing ocean chemistry very dramatically. And some sometimes just will tell you that, you know, of all the things we are doing to the planet right now, probably that 
will have the most serious long-term effects. Um, it's very hard to reverse that on a, any kind of a, of a human time scale that you could imagine. I mean, we're talking about taking thousands and thousands of years for the ocean chemistry to return to a pre-industrial uh, condition. And, and what happens is that carbon dioxide, when it dissolves in water, is actually an acid. It's a weak acid if you drink uh, Coke or uh, seltzer, you're, you're drinking this, this weak acid, um, carbonic acid, which is what gives soda sort of a tangy taste and why soda tastes different when, once it goes flat. It doesn't have that carbonic acid anymore. And um, we are just sort of dumping <laughs> acid into the ocean. That's the effect of what we're doing, and we're changing the pH of the ocean. So any of your listeners out there who remember sort of their high school chemistry, we're... we're where very pH is a very very important um, variable in terms of, of of life in the sea and in terms of our own lives. If our if the pH of your blood suddenly changed, you know you would you would you would die. You could not withstand that for very long. Uh, so we devote a lot of energy, a lot of resources into making sure that the pH of our blood is constant. But a lot of organisms in the ocean can't do that. They don't have the physiology for that. So they rely on the fact that ocean pH is, over long periods of time, very, very stable. Um, but when, when human beings get involved and are able to liberate tremendous amounts of carbon from the earth by burning fossil fuels, uh, the pH does start to change, and that's what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And I may be confusing you uh, in your great work with um, uh, an article that uh, Julia Whitty did. She, I think you contribute to Mother Jones. Uh, she writes for Mother Jones, and she did an excellent piece about what's going on in the ocean. She's written a book since then. Uh, just what's happening with the shells on mollusks because of the disintegration of um, you know their shells, their 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 home, their bodies because of the um, changes in the alkalinity, acidity, pH balance. Right. Yes. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of good work going on. You know, a lot of tremendous scientific research efforts going on trying to figure out what the impacts are going to be. The impacts on Organisms that build shells out of calcium carbonate, so as you say, mollusks, and, but you know a lot of other kind of you know just a lot of classes of organisms. Um, well, maybe we're that. so selfish. We're only going to get concerned when we realize our seafood options are reduced. Is that what it's going to take when you can't get well, lobster quite, crab quite possibly. But once again, this is one of those things where you know once you once you realize it, once you decide, oh, well, that wasn't such a great idea. Um, Too late. Exactly. So what's it going to take? Because, as you said, there's great science taking place, there's great journalism taking place, and yet, you know, this country doesn't feel to me much different than it did five, ten years ago in terms of, um, you know, people talk. Yes, green became a trend and the green wave hit, and it's, I don't know where it sometimes feels like it's receding. Maybe it just hasn't really gone deep enough yet. It certainly needs to go deeper and wider in terms of just green consciousness and what we actually do about it, not just raise our awareness, but, but change our, you know, whole lifestyle to, to really reduce our ecological footprint and not only in energy but water use and and just overall resource use and yet i still you know i kind of measure by what the women in the you know locker room in my gym are talking about and again i live in the pretty progressive bay area i still you know it's the usual suspects mostly who are making the changes and uh why are we slow to catch on why is this still kind of a marginal issue or an option like well i'm not really into the environment or that's not really my concern I'm, i'm Everyone's busy, I know, raising kids, um, you and I included. 
uh, just trying to get through. But that busyness, we're going to wake up one day and say, oh, my God, why didn't we deal with this? What were we thinking? And then it is too late. And where will all those, you know, um, legislators who are not doing anything right now or maybe even worse, obstructing progress, where will they be then? Well, you know, right, exactly. I, I mean, as I say, unfortunately, there's a there's a pretty big time lag in the system so that, you know, by the time John Boehner might be forced to, you know, say, oh, that was kind of a mis- I made it. I made a terrible mistake, you know, really he'll probably have... Then he'll cry. Um, ...be in the great beyond, and, and, and so will the rest of us. So I always... I speak sometimes in college campuses, and I always... You know, try to convey the message to young people. Uh, this is your issue um, because the current generation um, is not going. We we will see the effects of it, and they may be quite dire in our in our own lifetimes. I don't want to give anyone you know a false sense of security here, but they will be really dire uh, in our children's lifetimes. And it's it's a terrible thing to, when you when you think about it. I find it a terrible thing. I mean, all these people out you know, racing around trying to do everything that they can for their kids and make sure that their kids get into the right colleges and all that. And and meanwhile, you know, not devoting the energy to making sure that there's sort of a habitable planet for our kids. And I completely agree with you that it's just a lot of, you know, misplaced energy, as it were. But I, you know, also think that solving these problems is really, really hard. It is if there were an easy solution I, I think actually you know, we we might be doing it. But it's really hard and we have um yet to show ourselves uh, in the slightest bit capable uh, of tackling hard issues. And there was so much hope around President Obama being not only the first black president the nation's had but the first green president and like you said, I think he does get it, but something happens when you get there. You get, um, you know, your message gets diluted, and you play politics, and all of a sudden, a State of the Union address with no mention of climate change or extinction or any of the and oceans, you know, in decline. Uh, it's it's quite remarkable. It, it truly is at this late stage in the game, and you one wonders, you know, what will it take? What what do we need? And uh, the good news, I mean, he did say that he will be eliminating, well, and it's not like he can do this anyway, so a lot of this is just talk, and a lot of it was sort of short on specifics as far as policies, but as a goal, he said to eliminate the billions in taxpayer dollars we currently give to oil companies. He said, I don't know if you've noticed, but they're doing just fine on their own. Yes, we had noticed that. I mean, record profits for Exxon and all the other ones uh, reported, and everyone's disgusted, so at least they're finally addressing that. Uh, and, you know, just talking about having goals of having more clean energy and more clean cars on the road. Uh, with some specific dates mentioned, but again, didn't give us the specifics on how we're going to get there and how we're going to pay for it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a speech that, that mentioned energy, as you pointed out. I, I actually went back and looked at last year's State of the Union just to see what he had said at that point. Oh, good idea. And it was sort of interesting. He said, well, he did mention climate change, but in this sort of interestingly backhanded way, it was like, well, whether you believe in climate change or not, you know, once again, as if as if believing, like if it's whether you believe, you know, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, whether whether that's going to change the basic, you know, physics. Um, but it still would be a good idea to do these things, and that's you know that's true. These things would be a good idea, uh, even you know, transitioning off of the the, the key thing to remember about fossil fuels. Uh, which are, you know, people have basically pointed out are, are fossilized sunlight. I mean, they are, they are um, 
photosynthetic energy that has been handed to us over hundreds of millions of years, saved up, stored up, and handed to us. And we are running through it, you know, even under the sort of best-case scenario. Uh, in a century or two, we could run through all the fossil fuel reserves in, on, in the world. Um, now, liberating all of that carbon dioxide that's been stored underground for tens and in some cases hundreds of millions of years would you know, radically change the planet. It would be like you know, living in a planet uh, you know, in the carboniferous age <laughs> hundreds of millions of years ago. Um, so we have been living in this in this planet where the that carbon has been stored, and now we are just sort of wantonly releasing it. But the other part of that is that's a finite resource. Those resources are very, very great, but they're finite, and eventually we are going to have to transition off of them anyway. So we can do it sort of sooner, you know, before uh, vast amounts of damage have been done, although we already have done vast amounts of damage, or we can do it later, you know, where our, where after at which point, you know, the world will be a radically different place. And uh, there was just a conference with um, Energy Secretary Stephen Chu in the last hour that I monitored, and he kept talking about um, how there will be a race. There is a race already. You know, we're um, competing with China and uh, Europe and Japan and other countries that understand that whoever wins the, um, you know, ability or earns the ability to have the latest, greatest clean technology to sell, you know, will be, you know, a world leader. And what do we want to do, be more dependent on China for buying not only consumer products up and down, but uh, also clean technology? So I, I wonder if, you know, that that's where there's got to be a lot of cognitive, dis- cognitive dissonance, um, more cognitive dissonance on the part of some of these um, disbelievers, the legislators who, you know, are all about patri- American patriotism and innovation and ingenuity, and then they sort of almost stop clapping mid-sentence when they hear that, He's talking, uh, the president, in, 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 as one example, um, in, in terms of, you know, our clean tech race. It's almost like somehow that's politically incorrect for them, those who don't want to really see investment there. And it's crazy because uh, if nothing else, you'd think that it would um, get their competitive, you know, patriotic juices going, realizing that we're going to lose again. And uh, why they, they, he got a pretty good round of applause, I have to say, when he mentioned um, the commitment to clean technology and uh, clean cars, but uh, that shouldn't be a politicized issue, you know, and um, it's it's puzzling, isn't it, Elizabeth? Um, that's putting it mildly. Just, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, really still I mean, I, I guess, sorry, go ahead. I, I, I just last thought, it, it just feels like the scope of the problems, just talking ecologically here, climate change, what's going on with extinction and ocean decline, is so great that when you hear a little bit of lip service, we environmentally-minded people tend to get excited about it, and yet it's still not nearly enough. We, we need to be doing everything we can yesterday to have a hope of our children not really suffering, you know, um, an unstable, unstable climate and shortages in clean water and clean air and abundant food supplies with droughts around the world, all these things that are predicted. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's just not enough, is it? No, it, it isn't enough, and I mean, that I think is the, where the political, you know, reality um, becomes very daunting and, you know, really, just to be honest, very depressing because even the things that, you know, were, were talked about and even the, let's say, the bill that we talked about earlier, the Marky Waxman bill in the House, which would have cut U.S. emissions by something like, you know, 17% over 20 20 years or whatever, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's not nearly enough to, uh, as you say, stabilize the climate. Um, 
So we are really, when you look at the, you know, I think it's Al Gore's line. I mean, sometimes the, um, you know, minimum that is scientifically necessary is, is, is beyond the maximum that is that is politically possible. And, you know, that's that's the situation that, that we are evidently in. Now, how do you... You know, is there a way to, to transform the situation? Is it is it that some event takes place? Uh, is it that some brilliant uh, leader, which we hoped was going to be Barack Obama, but which is evidently not, uh, takes the field? I I don't know. Or do we just shuffle along until you know we are consigning uh, our kids? And I shouldn't just say our kids because one of the other you know facts about climate change and that has become increasingly clear the more people have looked at at the numbers and, and, and run the models is that we're talking about changes that will take thousands of years. So, so our, you know, all of our descendants, as far as you can imagine, will be, be affected by what we're doing, you know, really right now. And um, there's a lot of arguments about what we need to address, you know, with jobs and the economy before right. we can deal with environmental challenges right. with a complete over, you know, they're, they're overlooking the, you know, probability that if we get serious about this, that can be one of the ways out. I mean, the largest growing job sector was in green jobs. And why is that politicized? I think uh, Britt Hume, who I think used to be an objective correspondent, but he was, I, I turned on Fox just to see how they were going to spin the uh, State of the Union, and he, he was, you know, poo-pooing. Uh, President Obama saying we're going to invest in clean tech jobs and that will, you know, be good for the economy. How can you poo-poo that? <laughs> Just, I mean, jo- jobs are needed for transition to a cleaner future, and that's pretty basic. Right. I mean, I, I think that the ec- economics of clean energy is is quite quite complicated, and there's, you know, a lot of people who make the argument, well, look, we have to bring you know, clean, and by this I'm referring to carbon-free energy, mm-hmm. so that it actually costs less than, you know, fossil fuels. Now, the really serious economic barrier there is is we have an infrastructure that's based on fossil fuels, right? So that infrastructure has been bought and paid for many times, and you need to, in effect, build a new clean infrastructure, and that is quite expensive. So this is why people have always said the only way or you're going to get this transition is by, you know, changing the economics of that. That's why you need either a carbon tax or some kind of cap and trade where you make carbon-based fuels more expensive relative to other forms of energy. What do you think of fees and dividends? I'm sorry? I'm sorry. I just want to know what you think of um, fees and dividends as an option to uh, cap and trade. Well, however you want to do it. I mean, what you do with the the revenue at at the far end, that is sort of a political um, question, but, you know, in terms of the incentives for uh, reducing energy, you know, carbon use of fossil fuels, you know, presumably the, the, the impact is at the front end when you, when you actually buy the thing. Now, when, when you, if you were to get that money back, um, that might make it a, a lot more uh, politically palatable, and I think that's you know a great idea. Let's do it. Let's do anything, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, uh, that will move us in the right direction. Um, but all of those plans, sort of the economics of them, uh, have to do with making uh, carbon-free energy you know more competitive relative to carbon-based sources of energy, and encouraging using you know our free market system in, to uh, to to affect that transition. And so the problem with doing clean tech, as it were, in a vacuum is that that's very hard because these 
things are more expensive. I mean, it simply is more expensive right now in a per kilowatt hour basis to produce your uh, electricity from solar power, let's say, than it is from coal, which is, you know, ridiculously cheap because you are not taking into account all these other environmental costs of coal. So I think that, you know, and there are a lot of people in the coal sector who argue, well, we don't want to lose our jobs, and people who have jobs uh, in an old sector, unfortunately, often have more political clout than, you know, the new jobs that have yet to be created. Created. So, you know, right. you, you lack a constituency there. Right. Right. There's, it's, it's hard to really change uh, everything about the way we produce uh, energy, and yet we must. So uh, well, I guess we'll continue having this conversation for a while more. Uh, your next book, we're just about out yeah. of time. Uh, when will that be coming out? Oh, good question. I don't know. A couple. Yeah, these things take quite a while, unfortunately. Okay, well, I'll look for that, and we'd love to have you back on the program. Hopefully I'll be back on mainstream network radio by then. I love Internet, but um, I think it's a little bit self-selecting. People who listen to my show tend to be the green community, which um, right. Lord knows we need them and I love them, but that's not going to have the impact that we really need. So thank you for the impact you have by um, publishing you know, in a place as mainstream and respected and prestigious as the New Yorker. And I love that you're going by Betsy, at least um, off air. So if I can say <laughs> even that in common, in addition to being a passionate environmental journalist or advocate, I guess we are. Uh, but in this case, I always say I'm unabashedly an advocate for environmental awareness, you know, consciousness um, right. against ignorance. And uh, one of the ideas for the Green Tea Party is they want um, – Less taxes, and and the green tea partiers would want less gases, and they're against big government. We're against uh, big ignorance. Uh, let's just at least deal with reality, folks. You know, let's listen to scientists and not just uh, quote celebrities all day long. Right. So my my pet peeve rant is over. Um, we're just about out of time. I I thank you for all the great work you do and for spending some time with us today on the Green Front. Well, thanks for having me. Elizabeth Colbert is, um, of course, a writer for The New Yorker, also has written a fabulous book. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it yet. It's five years old, but it holds up very well. Field Notes from a Catastrophe, and, of course, her award-winning series, uh, Climate of Man, uh, that was a three-part series, won too many awards to mention here, but it was uh, also in The uh, New Yorker back in 2006. So uh, we're going to be back and switch gears a little bit. We're going to be talking to somebody who's concerned about the toxins in your bra or your wife or girlfriend or daughter's bra, stay with us. So you never know what you're going to hear on the green front. I'm Betsy Rosenberg. Be right back.